everyone. Welcome to Antibodies. This is our 33rd episode, a segment where we discuss research papers with the first or last authors of the article. Joining me today is my co-host Eugenio from the Autonomous University of Mexico. How are you doing, Eugenio? I'm very good and very excited to discuss this paper with you today, Jatin. Same as well. I think this paper has changed a lot of my foundational understanding of immunology, but we'll try to keep it as spoiler-free as possible for the, at least the beginning. So the article we're discuss- discussing today is titled Transmission of Trained Immunity and Heterologous Resistance to Infections Across Generations. The paper is coming from the lab of Dr. Mihai Nitea at the Radbau Institute for Molecular Sciences. There are three co-first authors, Natalie Katzmarski, Jorge Dominguez Andres, and Branko Sirovic. I hope I pronounced most of the names correct. And we have Jorge here with us to talk about this paper today. Welcome to the podcast, Jorge. Hello, thank you very much for having me here today. It's a pleasure. Eugenio first, uh, he posted this paper on our Slack group and everybody was very excited about, oh, damn, this is this is new. This changes a lot of things how we have thought about immunology and also just inheritance. Eugenio, can you tell us something about our guest today? Today is my pleasure to introduce Jorge Dominguez Andres, who is an assistant professor at the Radboud University Medical Center in Eichmachan, the Netherlands. Born and raised in Spain, he started doing research in several institutes in Spain, particularly in the University of Salamanca and the University of Navarra. He concluded his PhD at the National Center for Biotechnology in Madrid, studying the host-pathogen interactions during Candida albicans infections. He later moved to the Radboud Institute for Molecular Science at the lab of Mihanetea to study trained immunity. Jorge, before we dive into the paper, how did you get interested in pursuing a career as a researcher? Well, what can I say to that question? I would say that uh, since I was uh, little, I always wanted to know how things worked. Uh, I grew my own plants. Uh, I studied the behavior of animals when I was in the countryside and everything, and I was always wondering why things were that way. So I think that being a researcher is definitely the best way to try to find uh, answers to <clears throat> to all the questions that are around. Can you tell us a little bit more about of the work and the, your experience at the lab of Professor Nitia? Because from what I've heard, it's one of the, the labs that publish a lot because you have a really collaborative spirit in their institute and in their lab. So can you tell the audience a little bit more about your experience as, as, as a postdoc at the lab of Professor Nitia and the importance of being collaborative? collaborative in science? Mm-hmm. Well, so I'd say I'm, I'm very happy with my experience at the lab of, of Mihai Nedea and uh, the department in general. So we have, as you say, a very collaborative atmosphere. It's a laboratory that works as a, yeah, it's a whole department together. We are around 60 to 80 people, so starting from master's students, PhD students, postdocs, and then uh, junior PIs and more experienced PIs and their professors. And we try to, of course, there are many different research lines, but we try to work together on that. Like, let's say um, the data that we have is public and it has to be shared between all of us, all the protocols, all the methods, everything, all the machines, all the reagents, it's all accessible to each member of the lab. Like, that's that's the only way that we can be uh, productive and we can try to achieve common goals. So uh, mostly my work uh, in this lab in the last years has been focused mostly on the trained, uh, trained immunity and the features of the innate immune system, like the memory of the innate immune system, the relationship with uh, infections, host pathogen interactions and uh, um, evolution, how it affects the, the uh, in this case, we're going to talk about transmission of effects to different generations, immunometabolism, but there are also many colleagues working on the effects on the cardiovascular diseases, inflammatory diseases, uh, diabetes. It's a, we are a, a lab with many people who do a lot of things. And uh, yeah, if we were not collaborative, uh, we wouldn't be so 
so productive. So nowadays in this globalized world, if we can't work together, we will not be able to reach anything. So being collaborative is, is fundamental, not only in a single lab, but also working together with other labs. So combining the different expertises of different people and different labs is the only way to move forward. I couldn't agree with you more on that one. I was I was listening to a talk from Dr. Chen, Jenny Ting. She works at the, um, she was a president of the AI at some point. And she mentioned that during one of her major discoveries, she had to get collaborators from the plant immunology side. And just tells you like, you could find you can find inspiration and technical knowledge from people who you may not exactly think are relevant in your field. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Actually, this concept of trained immunity and innate immune memory comes from plants. Yeah. So this was already something known that happened in, in plants, like plants can acquire what it's called systemic acquired resistance, in which they survive uh, an insult and an infection, for example, and then they also acquire resistance to other infections that is maintained in time. And plants do not have adaptive immunity. So this is through innate immunity. And this is how this idea started to try to find also this concept in mammals. And that's how it uh, how it started. So it's a very good example, that one that you've uh, just mentioned. That was great. So I think with that, let's move on to some of the terminology before we are ready to dive into the paper. Um, so in the terminology sections, we want to define some terms to make sure our audience is ready for those terms when they come into the results section. Jorge, can you help me in explaining what is Lamarckism? Well, Lamarckism, it comes, uh, of course, from uh, Jean-Baptiste Lamarck. He was one of the first evolutionary biologists, and he defined uh, his theory of the transmutation of species in the 19th century. And, uh, well, basically, he uh, described the fact, he postulated the fact that um, a species adapts to its environment and can transmit this to the next generations. The most famous example is the giraffe, the uh, Lamarck's giraffe. And he postulated that giraffes have every generation a bit of a, sh of a longer neck to be able to, far, uh, to reach the upper uh, the leaves of the upper branches of the tree. So basically, they were adapted to their environment and this adaptation led to changes, to physical changes in the, in the, in the giraffes or in the different species that make them, makes them more, uh, more suited to their environment. Hey, thank you for that. So again, the point being that so environment rather than the genetics being the driving factor here. Yeah, exactly. All right. So the next term I would like your help with is trained immunity. Mm -hmm. So trained immunity is what we would define as the memory of the innate immune system. So normally, as you know, uh, the innate immune system is normally divided into two major branches, the adaptive and the innate. And until a few years ago, it was considered that only the adaptive immune system has memory features. And let's say from a specialized point of view, this is true. That what we've seen since more or less 10, 12 years ago is that also the innate immune cells are able to develop a certain type of memory. This is being that if an innate immune cell, such as a monocyte or macrophage, in some cases the NK cells or even the neutrophils, they adapt, they have a challenge, they have an insult, and this leads to an acute response, the typical innate immune response. And then when this insult disappears, the, this uh, inflammatory status of the cell goes back to baseline. And normally we'll think that that's over, that's the end. But now we know that these cells adapt. There is a reprogramming of their epigenetic and their metabolic landscape that allows them to respond in a stronger, in a more enhanced way to a second insult. So when these cells, when these bodies, when these organisms are exposed to a second insult, some days, weeks, months after the first insult, these innate immune cells will respond in a more enhanced way. 
and the, also the special feature of this type of memory is that the stimulus doesn't need to be the same. It can be the same stimulus or it can be also another stimulus. And this is uh, why we call them also these heterologous responses because they can also be uh, elicited, they can be triggered by different types of stimuli. Oh, so yeah, right before we jump into the heterologous infection part, um, regarding trained immunity, how is the duration compared to adaptive memory? Yes, that's also one of the million dollar questions in the field. So adaptive immune memory can last for a long time. So you have specific memory B and T cells that depending on the, on the stimulus will last for months, years and even a lifetime. In the case of innate immune cells, as you know, the innate immune cells are short-lived. So these long-term responses depend on the adaptation of the hematopoietic stem cell progenitors. So these hematopoietic, uh, hematopoietic stem cell progenitors also carry these, uh, these changes, the functional changes, and they will transmit them to the daughter cells. So this is the way this memory is maintained. However, this memory will only be maintained for weeks, months, or according to some studies, maybe a couple of years. But we know that this type of memory fades away with, uh, with time. So it's not, uh, it's not lifelong lasting. Okay. All right. And now coming to the heterologous infection part. So what is heterologous infection, if you can define it again? So a heterologous infection is basically an infection that is caused by a different agent. So uh, it's not, let's say, not it elicits a non-antigen specific response. So let's say you have an infection with candida first, and after some time you have an infection with a, with a bacteria. That's an heterologous infection. It is caused by a different agent than the original infection. Okay. So I'm guessing the same infection again and again would be called homologous infection? Yeah, exactly. That's okay. it. <laughs> All right. So, and when we talk about heterologous infection, there's also a term called heterologous resistance, which mm -hmm. infection from one organism gives some resistance to another organism. And you said trained immunity is a part of it. So before we talk about specifics of trained immunity, there are some reports that BCG vaccination protects from COVID. Is that a kind of heterologous resistance? And do you think trained immunity is a part of it? Yeah, exactly. That's definitely a kind of heterologous resistance. And uh, there's been a lot of literature about BCG and COVID. And unfortunately, we're still not sure if BCG protects from COVID because there are very different and contrasting results. So if BCG protects from COVID, we definitely think they'll be through. I definitely think it'll be uh, at least poly through trained immunity. But as I insist, depending on the studies, studies with mice, studies with primates, clinical trials with humans, uh, many of them show that actually there is no uh, protection against COVID. Some studies in mice show that, but regarding COVID, we are still we need still more more research. However, we know that BCG protects against some uh, illicits. Uh, responses against, for example, candida infection, bacterial infection, against influenza. Uh, so there is definitely, uh, it's definitely inducing heterogonous resistance against different types of infection. But in the case of COVID, uh, we still need to, to wait and clarify the, the, the specific effects against it. Well, with the rate at which COVID research is going, I bet we'll know that next month. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully, yes. But uh, yeah, COVID is a very, very special pathogen, apparently. So it's incredible the amount of research that everyone has done in COVID and all the things that we know now about COVID. But still, I think we've just scratched the, the surface. There's so many things we don't know yet. Oh, yeah, definitely. Also tells me how much we don't know about other pathogens who haven't received a fraction of the interest as COVID has. Yeah, okay. absolutely. So with that, let's dive into the introduction of and the premise of this paper. Well, when we think of evolution, we typically remember Darwin, natural selection, and inheritance of traits through genes. However, we may take a step back and look at what Lamarck suggested. Some traits may be inherited through non-genetic mechanisms. 
In fact, there are studies that back Lamarck's claim, as Jorge said, in plants, this kind of immunity called systemic acquired resistance, it can be transferred to their offsprings. A similar transgenerational inheritance has been shown in C. elegans. And since immunity to infections is paramount to determining survival, it is possible that such non-genetic transfer of traits may have come into existence as an additional layer of defense adaptation. With all this information, the authors of this paper hypothesized that mammals may have a similar non-genetic way of transferring immunity-related information across the generation. Jorge, I have a question here. Mm-hmm. Who would you accredit for coming up with this hypothesis originally? And has this been been a lingering question in the field? Well, definitely. I think this question has been open for the last 150 years. Uh, but uh, since the first theories of Lamarck, but it's mostly been in the last decades with the advent of epigenetics that it's shown uh, let's say it's come back to to actuality to to the present, and I have to say that I joined the lab of Mihainetea four and a half years ago, and at that point that project had or this project had already started. So I can say this uh, starting this project wasn't my idea. I think this started mostly with conversations between uh, Mihainetea and Evangelos Jamarelos, who's also an alas author of the. Of the manuscript and they they decided to to start doing the first mice experiment as a proof of concept to see if these effects were observed and when they saw something then everything exploded and uh, it was decided that we had to do many more things oh thanks also well you focus on heterologous infections rather than homologous infections in this paper is there a particular reason for that well, let's say from an evolutionary point of view, if this is relevant, it should be able to protect us against different types of infections. Like really what would make some benefit for the next generations is not only that we are protecting against one specific type of infection, that's adaptive immunity that maybe can be uh, transmitted through antibodies uh, in breastfeeding and different types of mechanisms, but uh, from a evolutionary perspective, it will be very important that if the next generations are actually more resistant to different types of infections. So uh, let's say this, together with the fact that focusing on innate immune responses, they are uh, they are not addressed exactly against one specific type of infection, but against all of them. Altogether, this made that focus on heterologous infections. Okay. I was saying this is like analogous to the broadly neutralizing antibodies that exist, like just neutralizing multiple virus strains or something like that, except that this is going to more than strains across Mm -hmm. species and even kingdoms. All right. So with that, let's dive into the first result. And in the first results, the authors are asking this question, does the infection in mice increase immunity for heterologous infection in their offspring? To answer these questions, the authors used a Candida albicans model of infection, also called Candidiasis. The unique thing about Candidiasis is that it has been shown that mice that recover from C. albicans infection also have some protection against bacterial infections through heterologous protection and, again, of course, strained immunity. Therefore, this would be an example of heterologous immunity, right? The authors want to look at if this trained immunity is transferred across the generation. So they infected mice with non-lethal doses of C. albicans. Let's call these mice the exposed mice and the control group as unexposed mice. They mated these exposed mice or unexposed mice with females who also were not infected. Then they tested if the F1 offspring had existing immunity towards gram-negative bacterial infections. Here's the cool part. After an infection, the offspring mice from exposed mice, but not the unexposed mice, had lower bacterial burden in their lungs and liver. These mice also had increased recruitment of immune cells to the site of infections and higher concentration of pro-inflammatory cytokines. 
The authors also found that the bacterial infections in bone marrow cells resulted in much more expansion of myeloid lineage cells in the offspring of exposed parents. Jorge, did you expect to have similar results if the female parent instead of the male parent had been infected? Mm, definitely. In this case, we focused on the male mice to simplify the model uh, because, of course, the transmission of traits from male parents to the to the offspring to the offspring has to be through the sperm or through the seminal liquids. And in the case doing this with mothers, uh, there are many more factors. But we actually, in one of the supplementary figures, we did similar experiments with, uh, with females, actually in the lab of uh, Thierry Roger in uh, Lausanne. They did it with uh, Simosan in females. And the differences observed in survival are actually larger. So, so we also see these effects uh, infecting or challenging females, yes. Oh, so I guess you've got another paper coming out now. No, that, that's the in the sex difference. It's in the it's in the supplementary figure, so it's also it's a bit more hidden than the main figures, but it's also there. Oh, it's all already there. My bad. <laughs> I, I need to start reading supplementals. <laughs> <laughs> okay, now that we have established there is a direct transfer of immunity to the next next generation. That is, F zero gets infected. F one generation gets some enhanced protection. However, the authors want to test for transgenerational inheritance. That is, if the F0 generation was infected, do F2 or F3 generations also get the benefit without the prior generation having direct exposure? It's like asking if my grandfather or great-grandfather had recovered from bubonic plague. Uh, do I get some resistance to heterologous infections? The authors found that F2 mice when the F0 exposed grandparent had, uh, when the F0 exposed grandparent, uh, these F2 mice had lower bacterial burden when challenged with E. coli. However, F3 mice did not have this heterologous protective effect. So Jorge, if I'm thinking of it in the correct way, if my grandfather, I'm assuming of course this is translated mm -hmm. to humans, so we'll yes. assume that for a while. If my grandfather had C. albicans infection, I would still have some resistance to E. coli infections, or maybe I'll have a heightened response to E. coli infections. But if my great-grandfather had C. albicans infection, I will likely not inherit that part of protection. Is that correct? Uh, yes, so if we literally translated our results to humans, that would be the case. But unfortunately, I don't think we could do that. Yes, definitely. <laughs> of course, uh, <laughs> we are using a very, let's say, restricted mouse model here. And it's something that we always need to remember when do, we do this kind of research, that these are laboratory models. We know the pathogens they have. These mice have not, never been living in the wild and, and so so the the only way to prove that this happens also in humans or in more complicated scenarios is to try to reproduce this research in different models and uh, one thing that is also very important here regarding the difference between f2 and f3 or the grandfather and the great-grandfather is that if these mechanisms are very important in nature and i think they are Normally, we would also be exposed to infections. Like, for example, what we see in our mice is that we see an effect on the F1, we see an effect on the F2, on the second generation, we don't see it on the F3. Why can that be? Well, what I think is that why should this effect be kept? Because the F0 had an infection, but the F1 and an F2 didn't. So then these mechanisms, uh, these epigenetic, potentially epigenetic mechanisms are very plastic, they adapt. So if the stimulus is not kept, it is, the, the life of these mice is not threatened, this, uh, this evolutionary dyslexic pressure is lost, so the effect is lost. But what I would expect at a species level, at a population level, is that if indeed these mechanisms are important, and the pathogens are around you and you need to survive, these mechanisms will be fixed. So then they make you stronger and they will help you to survive and they will be maintained across the different generations. 
that's a great way of looking at it. So it, it's, it's like a similar thing with T cells. As long as the antigen persists, the T cells will persist. When the antigen yeah. is out, they'll form a memory and then get out of the way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But of course, this is happening in a single organism with the T cells. And what we are talking about here is a cross generation. So it's like it's a completely different story here. Anyway, so coming back to the cells. To further test their hypothesis, the authors also used two other models. First, the LPS peritoneal injection model, and the second, the Zymosan A challenge model. In the LPS model, they injected LPS into F0 mice and tested for response to LPS in F1, and as expected, the F1 mice had increased cytokine secretion in response to LPS. In their next model, they tested for heterologous immunity to Listeria monocytogenes in F1 when the F0 was challenged with Zymosan A, which is a fungal product. This is similar to what they did with the C. albicans plus E. coli, but with different fungal and bacterial counterparts. Again, as expected, Zymosan challenge in F0 provided protection to Listeria monocytogenes infections in the F2. Overall, the authors show that there is a transgenerational transfer of up to two generations of heterologous-trained immunity. Uh, Jorge, I have a question here, and Jatin, I have a question here. So all your models are for a TH1 uh, model. Uh, so all trained immunity are more focused on uh, uh, the generation of these immune memories only happening on a... A particular inflammatory conditions so you can develop this um, immunity uh, with different type of infections that are not similar well we can't develop these kind of responses with different types of infections so for example we know certain stimuli that induce these mechanisms of trained immunity such as uh, candida albicans as it was mentioned or different fungal uh, fungal infections but we also know that lps at very low doses can also induce these we know that also some uh, like PCG, as it was mentioned before, this vaccine that has a mycobacterial origin can also induce these mechanisms. We know that some endogenous lichens, such as uh, oxidized low density lipoproteins, can also induce these mechanisms and are actually involved in the pathogenesis of atherosclerosis. So basically, there is a large battery of compounds that can be bound by different uh, pattern recognition receptors, just Dectin-1, TLR4, or uh, TLR7, or NOT2, that are able to trigger these mechanisms. So uh, there are many, many uh, organisms that can, can trigger this, and we are every day discovering more, actually. <laughs> so can you, do, uh, can you use training immunity with parasites? Uh, I think there is a paper about that. Don't that you mentioned that? I think you can. Um, uh, there is a paper about malaria, actually. There is a paper about malaria, and I remember now, Journal of Immunology a few years ago, where they showed that they can actually induce strain immunity. Yes. Okay. Thank you. Okay, thanks for the questions, Eugenio. Let's move on to the next question that the authors are asking. What kind of cellular changes are induced by the infection? It is known that the bone marrow resident myeloid cell progenitors and that repertoire is critical for maintaining trained immunity. Therefore, the authors tested these myeloid subsets in exposed and unexposed F1 progenies. And here is what they found in a nutshell. The myeloid cells in the F1 exposed mice were more activated and migratory. Uh, Jorge, I actually have two questions here. Mm -hmm. uh, the first one being, well, let's say there is an infection in the lungs, okay? Yeah. Now, how is that? And there is a trained immunity, right? Because these mice after, let's say these mice will again for a lung infection with that pathogen or another one will have some kind of resistance. So how is this information traveling from the lung to the bone marrow? Do you, do you know yeah. what I'm talking about? Yes, yes, yes. I know what you're talking about. Yeah, this is also one of the main questions. Uh, so one of the main, it's not really clear, let's say, there are different, uh, let's say, different ideas. One, one of them is that um, 
the pathogen is also able to reach the bone marrow that we know for certain vaccines that they are administered systemically and uh, they have some local effects but they're also able to reach the bone marrow and in this way they also prime they also train the cells at the bone marrow locally and uh, it is also possible that some of the in some of the immune cells that are circulating they also home back to the bone marrow so they carry they might carry these effects with them okay so you're saying that this effect is because of the pathogen physically or maybe sending its antigens over to the bone marrow so it has to be yes there yes okay. and also the cytokines that are being produced are also Produ uh, they are being produced and they are circulating at a systemic level, so this has a global, uh, a global systemic effect, affecting the bone marrow too. And Jorge, for my next question, what do we know about the lymphoid compartment when it comes to such an intergenerational transfer of immunity? Do you think it has any role in it? Well, it must definitely have a role, and I'm absolutely no expert in lymphoid immunity, but they have been already published some papers very nice papers related with um, with the lymphoid compartment and the microbiota and the relationships between the microbiota and the t-rex and the and the cells in the gut and different amino acids that are responsible also for some effects observed in the next generations and these are caused by the by the role of the different or different cells in the lymphoid compartment so definitely all these effects are always a mixture of all these different compartments and they all play a role, I'm sure. All right. So with that, Eugenio, do you want to tell us about the next result? Yes, for sure. I think uh, we have seen some really cool data and now we're going to look more mechanistically what's going on in, in these animals. So. To have a deeper understanding of the changes that training immunity induces in the bone marrow, the authors perform RNA-seq of bone marrow, granulocyte monocyte progenitors, common myeloid progenitors, and bone marrow monocytes, and compare the transcriptional profiles of F1 control and F1 exposed mice. Concordantly with their previous results, the authors found that the F1 exposed common myeloid progenitors upregulated genes involved in the extracellular signaling, PRRs, modulation of lymphocyte activation, mitochondrial metabolism, among others. A similar phenomenon is observed when analyzing the transcription, of, the transcription of monocytes from the bone marrow, where in this case there is an increase in genes associated with the acute immune response indicated immune-related priming. A deeper analysis indicated that in this bone marrow there is an enhanced myeloid cell differentiation towards a monocyte lineage commitment progenitor of F1 exposed mice. Finally, the authors analyzed the chromatin accessibility of common myeloid progenitors and monocytes by ATAC-seq technology. The analysis revealed differentially accessible peaks within gene, pro within gene promoters regions in F1 exposed mice. Most of the accessible sites were closest to the genes involved in the regulation of myeloid cell development and activation. In conclusion, the basis of enhanced innate immunity response observed in F1 exposed mice is mediated by the establishment of an inflammatory epigenetic imprinting toward a more efficient innate response. Um, Jorge here, in trying to connect with last question, uh, it also seems that these monocytes have increased MHC class II molecules. Do these monocytes have increased antigen-presenting capacity when differentiated towards monocytes or macrophages, uh, towards dendritic cells or macrophages? leading eventually to a faster adaptive immune response? That's actually a very good question and we haven't tested that. Uh, so that'll be a very interesting to test because actually, of course, as you know, the disease or the antigen presentation capacity of the cells, it's in the middle of uh, the innate and the adaptive response. I'll be very nice, uh, very nice actually to check, but I don't know, I can't tell you about that. Actually, if that is true, that yeah, would... I think that would be really interesting question to yeah. to to answer. Like that would make trained immunity just be necessary for the innate, and the adaptive is automatically being influenced by the enhanced innate. Yes, I think there is one paper of some years ago where they checked that in vivo, and they actually saw that inducing trained immunity, of course, nothing to do with different generations, but inducing 
in uh, innate immune memory or trait immunity actually enhanced the capacities of dendritic cells to present antigens. So it was affecting both the innate and the adaptive branches. I mean, everything's um, interconnected. Eventually, we are yes. <laughs> we are a single organism, and the the immune cells have no idea if they are innate or adaptive. So everything eventually is one single organism and one single uh, puzzle. Let's say mm -hmm. yeah, those are just boundaries we created. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yes, exactly. it's completely artificial. <laughs> Finally, uh, we have reviewed some of the key experiments of this work. However, there is this one experiment that really definitely blew my mind. And we all know that all our traits are coded in our genome, as well with some epigenetic marks that define our phenotype. In this context, if all traits needed to be inherited, including immune training, changes must occur not only at the level of somatic cells, but also in germ cells. The authors analyzed the sperm metallum of control and infected and recovered males and surprisingly found more than 1,500 genome regions differentially methylated between controls and infected animals. Concordantly with their data, some of the genes with different methylation programs were associated with myeloid cell regulation. In conclusion, these findings indicate a clear dependent change on sperm DNA methylation after infection, suggesting a connection to the transgenerational inheritance of the immune reactivity phenotype. Um, Jorge, really great results, really interesting. I think this part of the paper really uh, blew my mind when I was reading this uh, many months ago. But um, I was thinking on the spermatogenesis um, per se. So we know that spermatogenesis in mice takes more than 35 days. At which time did you analyze the metalome? One month after infection? If so, what would happen if we analyzed the metalome in three or four months after the first exposure? Are we looking at the same pattern here or is somehow erased here? Yeah, so indeed, that's also a very, a very good question. We did analyze the, the methylene one month after infection and three or four months after the first exposure. Um, I wouldn't know, like, if the stimulus is strong enough, I would expect it to still stay in the methylene, but it is possible that it is gone. Because, I mean, as we mentioned before, these mechanisms have a lot of plasticity. And as we see the effect fading away in the third generation, it is actually possible that if we do not have another insult, uh, these effects are also lost in the sperm. So that's perfectly possible. Yeah, so it might be that there exists a specific time window. Because from, a, from an evolutionary perspective, from an evolutionary point of view, if these mechanisms are important, those populations for which these mechanisms are important are probably exposed constantly to different types of stimuli and different types of infections the whole time. Wow, that's I think really one of the points that uh, I found really interesting and it needs to be, I think, more discussed in deep because then uh, if we think in human population, then it seems that you have this time window where if you want to inherit this protection, you need to, I don't know, uh, to be young. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it will be really interesting to, to dive on that question. Well, finally, uh, Jatin, can we uh, wrap up the discussion now? Oh, yes. So I, I have the same question as what I asked you about the monocyte progenitors. How is the mm -hmm. signal reaching, let's say, the testes? Is it again through cytokines or are the antigens or the, or the infect, infecting agents are themselves reaching the testes? Yes, that I have no idea. I would really like to know, but I have no idea because it could be could be many things. It could be the pathogen reaching the testes. I have more doubts about that. It should be some kind of cytokine, some kind of signal, but I don't know. I'll probably say that it's mostly through cytokines, but that'll be a wild guess. I don't really know, and I would really like to know. So I hope that someone can discover it. Yeah, that would be a great question. What if there is a particular like a set of cytokines, like do we know a set of cytokines that are involved in this trained immunity behavior? Yeah, so for example, the most typical ones are interleukin 1 beta, interleukin 6 and TNF, also in terms of neutrophils, interleukin 8. So there'll be some candidates that we could uh, that we could study, yes. 
do you think like they these cytokines indirectly would have an impact on the epigenetics of the cell yes 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 they uh, i'm pretty sure they might and not only the cytokines actually some metabolites that are also uh, reprogramming the behavior of the cell can uh, can have uh, also the capacity to modify the epigenetics of the cells so it's probably it's probably not only one factor but a combination of many of them it's like everything in this goddamn field <laughs> uh, yes exactly factors exactly that's it you never find a single thing it's always a combination of it <laughs> okay i think this would be a good time to dive into the discussion so uh just something that i remembered from reading three years back we had a journal club on antibodies and we had this paper discussed where influenza induced protection there was influenza infections in lungs and that would give, provide protection to streptococcus pneumoniae. Mm -hmm. So I would guess this is another example of heterologous resistance, right? Definitely, definitely. And yes. possibly another role of trained immunity. I think so. I'm not, uh, I don't remember that paper exactly, but uh, something very important there would be to see if the, uh, if the protection is local or it's also systemic. Because one thing that I, th I think it's going to explode in the next years is to study the induction of heterologous resistant and trained immunity at the local level because at the systemic level is very nice but you need a very strong insult so probably the effects that we see locally in the mucosa in the lung in the skin in the in the vaginal tracts and in the nose in the oral mucosa as well are probably very 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 important okay. then this is just a a big picture a question so let's say first of all do we have any information about this happening in humans well that's uh we have some information like for example we know uh from studies from the group of christine ben and peter abby in uh, in guinea bissau that the children of fathers and mothers that have uh, a bcg scar so that they have been vaccinated with bcg they respond better also to uh, to a BCG vaccine. So mm -hmm. somehow epidemiological studies, we don't know anything about the mechanisms yet, also point towards this direction, that somehow there is a transmission of, uh, of immunity to the next generations. That's great. And I feel like to, to study this in a controlled manner, it would take generations of work <laughs> as well because humans do live longer than mice. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that'll be great. That'll be absolutely great. And I don't know if maybe there are some studies already going on, but for example, checking what happens in the case of people who have uh, metabolic diseases as they are also inherited um inflammatory diseases of different kinds so probably now in the last uh, decades is the moment that we can start checking the, the the registers of these patients and see what happens with the kids uh, i think in a couple of generations we'll start to have some some answers to this okay so now coming to my big picture question if this is true for humans would this ever have an impact on public health policies like if if my father received the COVID or i received a covid vaccine does my kid have to receive the same dosage of the vaccine could it be a changed dosage for my kid since i have received a vaccine and like if i have let's say should my medical records be linked to my parents medical record for better therapeutic intervention do you see these things being affected once we have this knowledge well once we have this knowledge that'll probably take decades definitely <laughs> definitely absolutely because uh, in the terms of vaccines of course i don't expect all the vaccines all the diseases to cause these effects this is something that will be caused by something very very specific in types of infections in big doses in different populations probably affecting in a different way but if this turns out to be also happening in humans this should be something definitely to take into account also not only for the next generations to see oh what happens with my parents but also to think about the future like mm -hmm. if we are exposed to different diseases or to different vaccines or pathogens maybe we are already 
preparing the next generations and uh, for example uh, seeing what happens in the first years of our lives that are shaping our immune system probably this is also affecting and what you've mentioned about the medical record linked to the parents medical record i mean that already happens uh, not thinking about the epigenetic effects, but thinking about the genetic effects. If uh, your ancestors, let's say your parents, grandparents or so, they had some metabolic diseases, obesity, cancer or so, your chances of having them are probably higher. And that's already being taken into account for medical records, which sometimes can be a bit dangerous, but if they're use it, being used with care, it should be good. Yeah. So this would lead me to a very generic question about what's your future work? Are you continuing to stick with this question? We would like to continue uh, answering this question. So on the first hand, we would like to know if this happens in humans. So to check again some epidemiological records or maybe thinking about some studies where we could study these and in terms of uh, mechanisms studying in mice uh, or different animal models potentially how as we mentioned before how is this connection between the soma and the gametes or how long does this protection last also the windows for spermatogenesis or if this has also an impact in inflammatory diseases like we know that these mice are more protected against infections but maybe they're also more prone to suffer inflammatory diseases because they have a lower threshold to to start the innate immune responses or what happens in aging like uh, does this favor agent is it better is it worse so there's so many implications we could study and uh, we hope that we will study some of them but i really really hope that many more people will be willing to study what happens in this in these models and in these mechanisms I've been thinking about autoimmunity because what's happening mm -hmm. in autoimmunity is that you have an enhanced reaction to something. So usually we think about, oh, there's some genetic difference about regulation. Maybe they're not able to regulate their behavior in, in immune response as much. But what if you are inheriting this enhanced reaction from a previous generation? In that case, your genetics are just fine. Exactly, exactly. So it's something that should be taken into account because this can modulate your immune responses and of course this is combined with uh, genetics that had a huge impact on your immune responses but also as i mentioned before with the exposures you must have in your first years of life mm -hmm. because we know for example that children who grow in farms normally they develop much less allergies so again as you mentioned before it's a combination of all the things we have around and the more information we have the better we can have an impact on it and try to know what is best for our immune system and what is best to have controlled uh, responses against all kinds of stimuli. Yeah. And the actually another question. So this is this is about a, a paper that was published that says that was I think like a counter argument to your work. So hmm. what are your thoughts on uh, Devengahi's work and what would be the cause of the different results that were published by their group? Well, so my thoughts are, is that it's a very good work, it's a very robust work and it's a very necessary work. I think this is exactly what we need, not only in terms of our work, but in terms of all works that we find some we find something in a model under some specific conditions but this has to be found also by others in other places with mice with mice with different genetic background in different conditions so um, my first thought is that it's very positive and of course i find it a pity that they didn't find uh, the same but the cause of the different results might be multiple like uh, of course, the mice in Canada and the mice in Greece and the mice in Switzerland, even though they are all uh, black six mice, they have somehow a different genetic background. The housing conditions are different. The specific pathogens or specific biota that they might have is different. The feeding, the diet might be different. There might be difference in the way of administration. There might be difference in the strains. There might be difference in the housing. There might be difference in many, many different things. 
So the cause of the different results, I'd say it could be multiple, but I'm, I'm really happy they, they, did, they did it. They tried to, to, to do it. And I hope that more people will try to reproduce these results and we all together as a scientific community can find the right models and the right mechanisms and what is really behind these, uh, these mechanisms, what's driving them. Okay, so I think we are ready for the summary. Eugenio, how can we summarize this paper? Yes, uh, so this work showed for the first time that training immunity can be inherited through generation in mammals and can give protection to several infections. Infection induces changes in the metallome of the male gametes. This would probably be the main cause of epigenetic modification in the immune cells present in the offspring. So that that basically the summary of this work, this amazing work that I think will change uh, how we see immunology for our future generations. I think another way to summarize this is apart from all the uh, wealth and love and the genes that your parents are giving you, they're also giving you immunity. <laughs> <laughs> so you gotta I be mean, more they... thankful now after this paper to your parents. Yeah. Yeah, they also give you immunity through their genes, so everything you have is through your parents, also yeah. <laughs> while they, they feed you, so uh, we owe them everything. Yeah, like this, if we were a, a conspiracy theory podcast, we would say this is a propaganda paper by parents to coerce their <laughs> kids to love them more. <laughs> yes, yes, and let's not talk about vaccines if this was a conspiracy podcast. Oh, yeah. Oh, what are vaccines? We don't believe in that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I think this would be a great point to wrap up the discussion. Thanks a lot, Jorge, for joining us today. Well, thanks a lot to you. It's been a pleasure. Yes, and thanks, Eugenio, for the wonderful discussion. For our audience, if you are interested to know more about our science communication endeavors, please check out antibodies.org. You can find our blogs, journal clubs, and podcasts there. If you have any questions or suggestions, you can email us at antibodies1 at gmail.com. With that, I'm your host, Jatin Sharma, signing off until we meet again. Bye-bye. Mm-hmm.